This is Pakinggan Pilipinas. I'm Elise Punsalan, your fiction DJ. Probably one of the most lasting lessons I've had in college was in my humanities class, taught by a wonderful lady named Professor Rivera. It was a lesson on looking, how to look. To be more specific, it was how to look at Chinese landscape paintings of a certain style. You've seen one, I'm pretty sure. If you haven't, you may want to look at the image I posted. It's a rendering in ink on silk scroll with misty mountains, a river or waterfall, a house or temple next to it, hardy foliage, a bridge of some sort. They almost always looked alike and before my humanities class, I never really paid any attention to them. Our professor told us that to appreciate this painting, you have to imagine yourself as a person inked into the scroll. Position yourself at the bottom left of the painting and wait before the bridge. A monk will meet you there. He will take you by the hand and lead you safely across the bridge and from there you will walk toward the house and later to the temple a little way up. At the temple, remember to look up. The mountains would seem a bit more majestic after your interesting trip. I never forgot that lesson in looking. Every time I see a Chinese landscape painting, I get excited, even if it's just an old reproduction stuck on the wall of a rundown Chinese restaurant. It's as if it's a secret waiting to be told. And I began to think, somewhere along the way, that maybe we can take the same approach, where we look at familiar things in a different way, for other things like solving a math problem falling in love, saving the country, and telling stories like this one by Sarge LaCuesta. Self with Dog, 1997 by Angelo R. LaCuesta George Landicho hesitates at the door. It is his first visit to the art dealer's flat, and already he feels strange in a place so calm and quietly removed, twenty-four floors up. He wonders to himself why he never thought about living in a condominium. At home, his dog has the run of his small yard. He picks up scents and barks even before visitors knock. His paws make sounds like sparks across the pavement, and growling low, he pounces on the gate with his full weight and muscle. George bends towards the door, trying to pick up any noise, and is startled by a shadow behind the eye hole. The door opens, and behind it is James Fojas, a man whose age is difficult to guess. He is wearing wire-rimmed glasses, and behind them, his eyes are quick and bright. The flat is wide and white. From the door, there is a short hallway that, on its left, opens into a large, open room. The wall on the right is covered with paintings, the chaos interrupted only by three white doors. When James shows him in, he sees that the large room is lit with a natural brightness, opening through French doors into a wide balcony. It is morning, and the skies are light brown, and the light from the balcony is hard and crystalline, 
James points out that such bright light, only slightly polarized by the cloud cover and the tropical atmosphere, is perfect for viewing paintings. George's indoctrination begins with a tour of his collection, which James apologetically adds is a mishmash, a montage, a crude pile. There are small pieces by the young and unknown, in unframed canvases, on board, and on freshly unrolled paper. There are enormous flowers, ripe and unripe fruit, young boys playing in rivers. There are monkey-eating eagles, fighting dogs, and nudes in various settings and poses. James points out the differences between glossy acrylic, gentle watercolor, and dark, complex oil. Then James shows him the cream, hanging high on the wall in identical frames. In a pieta by Kyokok, the man is a bent, desperate skeleton, and the woman muscled and defiant. Both figures joined in colors of flesh, earth, and hardened blood. In a sketch by Ocampo, three spare lines are all it takes to fill the flesh-colored space, blurring into a woman's shape, form, and skin. A manansala nude is made full and slow-moving by strokes of thick black charcoal. George randomly picks a painting from those leaning against the wall an oil-on-wood of a fish vendor signed Baliaraton 1980. Out of curiosity, he asks James how much he wants for it. James clears his throat and murmurs the first of any lessons in his ear, that sometimes color can be a shape and shape can be a color, that in the hands of someone truly gifted, line, color, shape, frame are all interconnected and interchangeable. Soon, lines are bent, color is removed from color, shape is shrugged off, the frame disappears, and meaning appears. No longer do we see coherent structure, individual characters, but powerful themes, spiritual movement. Suddenly, we feel the impulses we cannot experience, the passion we can't afford to have. And that, my friend, makes a really good painting almost priceless. James invites George to an exhibit opening. George gets there early, but the party is already in full swing. He finds James by the bar, in a red shirt, leather pants and a cowboy hat, talking to a young girl with green hair and a nose ring. George is in his small clothes. He doesn't recognize a painter by work or by name. There are 15 of his works, large and complicated, in mixed media, spread out along one side of the gallery. They take the tour, and George stops before a Madonna and child, done in cut-up newspaper and stained in shades of red and sepia. Under James's guidance, George studiously marks the golden mean, seeks out the source of light, follows the path of the eye. The lines of the mother's arm and jaw lead him to a sun that hangs low and dim over her shoulder, where the child perches, small and faceless. James Cox's at and smiles at George. I have some of his old stuff. You'll find them to be better than any of these. Don't be foolish enough to fall for the gallery price.
Bruno is a Rottweiler in black and dull brown, four foot high at the shoulder. He consumes a sack of chow in two weeks. He is beautiful and expensive, a concession to the rising crime rate. When George comes home, Bruno growls and rattles on the gate with his weight, but is quick, heavy and lavish with instinctive affection. George Landicho lives in a townhouse off Tomas Morato Avenue and manages the money his parents left him two years ago. He's heavily into stocks, oils, second stringers, some blue chips, his modest inheritance, along with the current swell of interest in equity investments, give him the freedom to remain unemployed and unencumbered by routine, molded expectation, and the prefabrications and trappings of career and ambition. He sees his father's death as a renaissance. He sees himself to be part of that young generation, overqualified and under 40, with the rare ability to make markets move and form lush mountains out of the rocky business landscape. George puts rice in the cooker and dumps a packet of instant noodles in simmering water. He rips open a fresh sack of dog food, pouring the meaty chunks into one shallow bowl and filling another with fresh water. For himself, he retrieves a pot of adobo from the refrigerator and sets it on the stove. He sprinkles water on a plate of rice and puts the plate in the microwave. The light from outside is fading fast. As Bruno grunts and slobbers over his bowl, George looks intently, earnestly at his lot, hanging on his living room walls. The paintings refract and swell under the color, and inside him he feels something swirling rising like the tide. This is how he felt when he saw his first Amor Solo, his first Luna, his first Hidalgo. He was in Malacanang Palace on a group tour. They had a great collection of large canvases, but eroded by seasons of dust and years of neglect, oblivious to the routine rounds of the security guards and common clerks. The tour guide made the dramatic suggestion that these were once overshadowed by even greater works, lost over the years to presidential plunder. George looks at the opacity of fruits, the thick strokes of sunsets and landscapes, glowing in the afternoon light. But his living room is peopled most of all by faces, in smudged oil, in silky gouache, in silver pencil, with eyes everywhere, looking at him as he sits in his chair and crosses his legs. The business news is on. George remembers the Madonna and child and imagines it hanging in his home, a mosaic of headlines frozen in red, murder, rape and scandal among the sports scores, weather forecasts and financial warnings about the stock market finally reaching the inevitable downside of its cycle. With each hesitation George foregoes, with each check he writes, the floors and the walls of James Fohas's apartment shrink a little more, and he feels bigger, stronger. What seemed to be a white space, filled with squares of mysterious shape and color has become, in a matter of months, a tiny flat, laid out like a cramped, almost oppressive inverted letter L closed in by layers of canvases, new and long and sold, like rows of prodigious, multicolored teeth. George looks around and sees birdcages, 
cockfights, cathedrals, vortices of color, vague shapes and mottled forms that recall to him old terrors and childhood images. James shows him a Florian of a young couple, naked, their flesh-tinted fluorescent blue. 1962, 24-36 The man is covered by the woman's embrace, and looks at George Landiccio with a knowing, indifferent gaze of immortal boredom. Or perhaps, he thinks, it is the half-lidden look of the lust consumed. The pose is sexual, but their features asexual. The bodies are pressed together, not for warmth perhaps, but in anatomical prayer, or in a cold, otherworldly affinity. It's called Young Venus, George, and I can tell you, oh boy, that this is something totally different. The folks at Singapore went nuts over this. But you know, honestly, I couldn't bear to see it leave this country. For whatever it's worth, I still have this feeling sometimes, you know? Did you know that I was an activist when I was younger? But this is different, I tell you. This time, I really mean what I say when I say this is different. Somebody hid this beauty under a fucking rock in a fucking cave, and I was lucky enough to have the key. Done very well, James adds. Reminds me of early Francis Bacon. Now that was a mathematician. George smiles, nods, and squints. James retrieves a book from a shelf and shows him page after page of Francis Bacon. He points out the measured planes, the intersecting lines, the flesh folded and pressed into grotesque shapes. The antique table in the middle of James's apartment is a table from negotiations, discussions, and dinner. James is quick to point out the inescapable logic of using the same substrate for business, pleasure, and reward. Sit here so you can see it better. George sits with his back to the balcony light, facing the artwork. He sits across the table in front of him. His eyes remove themselves from young Venus, travel across the wall, and settle on another vortex, the dark navel of a reclining nude, her face concealed by a mask in the form of an owl's face, with blank round eyes and a hooked beak, crowned with feathers of green and yellow ochre. James quickly follows his eyes. Munying Maskiar's mask odalisk, he whispers. It's where all men's eyeballs drown. You will see that Munying has made a paradox of her. She is naked, but her face will never be known. It's a seduction, but a seduction without emotion, without the human face. She seduces us only with shape and with color. George shifts his gaze to the owl-like features. Behind the mask, she knows you want her, but she wants you, too, and tells you so, with the way she arranges her arms, her hips, her legs, her very navel, all without giving you the pleasure of her eyes or her expression. George Landiccio looks away and affords himself a secret grimace at James's sales talk. Still, he feels himself drawn to her outstretched arm the sharp, flesh-colored border of her body, the face he will never see. The mask reminds him of ostrich feathers, incense sticks, Arabic writing, and in the shadows behind her, he imagines other women bound in the oily darkness.
to restore his calm, George reminds himself that he is speaking to a middleman, a mercenary, someone who can easily read quick excitement and naive contemplation, and convert such muddled feelings into passion, even obsession. George looks at his watch and recognizes a comfortable hour, long after the mesmerizing heat of noon and the urgency of approaching dinner time. George goes to the balcony and sees the green of the golf course beneath him. He sees the strings of kites snarled on the electric lines. It's January again. The year promises to be small and nondescript, with nothing but more news of failing markets and the tired government in the middle of its term. He returns to his chair, sits back, swings a leg, and bides his time. You're absolutely right, James says, voice grave and low. You're being smart about it. This piece is not for the impulsive. It's not for the brute. It's for the patient. It's for the intelligent. The meanings creep in strong and slow. Only the most uncivilized rely on gut feel. Take your time, George. It sure did. It took more than 30 years to show itself to you. But it might have been painted yesterday, visualized today, imagined and dreamt of tomorrow. It fools time, and it fools the mind. George suddenly hears random sounds formed behind the wall of canvases. Dull footsteps, a television switching channels, the churn of air conditioning, the twist of the tap, and the rustle of water. He glances at James, and there are no signs he is married. He never thought to ask, though he is possibly in his middle forties, and he has lines on his forehead and a gray fringe of hair near his temples. He wears no ring. He looks quiet and relaxed, dressed this afternoon in a yellow plaid shirt, stiff jeans, and expensive-looking leather sandals. His hobbies betray the carefree, extravagant joys of the affluent and unattached. He spoke once of a diving trip with friends, on another time an evening at the casino, or a particularly energetic and relaxing session at the massage parlor, or, more recently, watching visiting amateur Russian ballerinas at the cultural center. He remembers him speaking once of women. That was over port and cigars in celebration of George's purchase of a four-by-eight-foot oil-on board by Hermes Alonso. It took a month of needling and haggling, and ended triumphantly for both sides. George confessed it took a huge chunk out of his savings, and James revealed to George how sad he was to let the Alonzo go, because the artist did not make such ambitious pieces anymore. The purchase finally deserved him a heart-to-heart -heart talk, a personal account of one of James's extraordinary pursuits. This one was of a well-known actress whom the dealer had kept in a hotel suite for a month, living on nothing but drugs, food, and sex. Those were in his younger days, when he was still painting. He could outsell three consecutive one-man shows in six months, and drove a top-down Benz. He performed stills, social commentaries, portraits. He painted everyone, even the president, who summoned him to do a mural of the first family. 
his biggest and last work. In 87, he went surreal and had a nervous breakdown. Behind James, one of the white doors opens. For the first time in all of George Landicho's visits, a young girl appears. She's in a sports shirt and jeans and carries a small wooden tray with coffee cups and a plate of biscuits. The softness of her form draws in the afternoon light, and her hair, wet from a bath, gathers a liquid yellow glow. James states a ridiculous multisyllabic price. Before George can say anything, he brings it down by a margin that is meant to be proportional to the magnitude of their friendship. First as friends of friends, and now as cultivated, accomplished, attuned lovers of fine art. I don't think I've introduced you to my daughter, Margarita, the dealer says. Margarita gives George a brief look and sets the tray on a table. George feigns fullness, fighting the urge to append his mild protestation with a rub of the tummy. She takes tennis lessons. James blinks behind his glasses as George Landicho interrupts to produce a checkbook. He scrawls an amount, signs the check, and tears it out. Bring out some sherry, he says to Margarita. Why don't you have dinner here, George? My daughter's only 19, but she can cook anything mean and quick. What kind of food do you like? I'm going out tonight, Dad, Margarita announces. Never mind, we'll go out to eat, the dealer says. Don't worry about me, George says, managing a quick look at his watch. I have a dinner appointment. As usual, the dealer arranges for a time to make the delivery of the painting and the certificate of provenance at George's home. He shows him to the door, making a last offer for dinner. Margarita comes out of the bedroom, smelling of perfume. She's carrying a duffel bag and a tennis racket. She nods to her father and walks out, past the men, to the elevator bay. George Lindicho emerges into the driveway, where the night is warm and all is quiet, save for the soft, muffled sounds of the street beyond the hedges that surround the condominium. Margarita is there, waiting on the pavement, a tall figure in jeans and a sports shirt, looking out toward the empty street. She glances at George and offers a vague look of recognition. George trembles, blinks, thinks Swag Suave, utters his name in a reflex formed out of cocktail parties and conventions. He offers a hand to shake and recalls his first meeting with his art dealer, her father. He remembers the story and wonders if Margarita's mother was that actress. That woman who was, he recalls, so beautiful on television and in the movies. Margarita smiles shyly, a curve of light appearing on her cheek, then swiftly disappearing as she turns toward the sound of a car crunching gravel and going up the driveway. She opens the passenger door, swings her duffel bag and tennis racket inside, enters the car, and pulls the door shut. In the darkness of the driver's side, George sees the shape of a man's face, lit faintly by the glow of a cigarette. He watches 
as she takes a cigarette from him and sticks it in her mouth. He imagines that he sees her face a split second before it turns, looking at him with an expression that hides, in its infinite colors, shades of helplessness, sadness, pity, and utter disdain. George Landicho returns home to a hungry dog and the smell of stale food and unwashed plates in the kitchen. He turns on the living room lights and imagines where his new painting might be, replacing perhaps the Baliardo fish vendor, which to him has always seemed too folksy, too ordinary, or perhaps the Ambrosio portrait, now too light and flat. The Ambrosio was the first major piece he purchased, not off his dealer, but from the artist himself. James brought him along to the studio. There was an unfinished canvas on the easel, a background in dark and complex layers, upon which the artist had penciled vague figures. Are you selling this? he asked the artist, then pressured him for a friendly price, as James himself had taught him. In this manner, he sees his collection taking shape through the long and difficult months, beginning from a bright moment of inspiration, then a period of darkness, of a muddled confusion, before finally coming through. He sits in his living room, mesmerized and nauseated by the colors and the faint smell of rotting food. In the morning, the phone rings while George is in the middle of preparing the dog's meal. Bruno hasn't been fed all day, he is unfamiliar with the voice on the other end. Mr. Landicho, you wrote out a check last week? Yes, I remember the date, George answers, seeing Margarita holding a tray full of porcelain in the slant of the afternoon sun. I even remember the time. He remembers writing out the check, laughing privately at the amount, and wondering how he would cover it. He remembers calling his broker to unload the last batch of blue chips. PLDT, Metrobank, I don't care. What's the difference? Sell the lot. The march of events, a series of patterns, broken images and reflections swiftly gathers order. Yes, I know the date I wrote on the check. No, was it the other week? The other day? He remembers the bar of light across her cheek. The sound of her voice, so different from this woman talking to him, correcting him. The check was dated yesterday and clears today, and unfortunately, you have no funds to cover it. Bruno growls. He is a black and brown blur in slow motion as he scampers toward the door, a split second before George hears a knocking on the gate outside. He tells the woman to hold stands up and scans his living room. In the afternoon light, the paintings look rich and heavy, their clumps of hardened paint like clotted soup. He looks out through the blinds and sees black leather sandals under the gate, the bottom part of a wooden frame resting on them. Outside, the sunlight is bright and prismatic. George notices for the first time the flaking layer of green paint on the metal gate, the metal latch catching a spectrum of color from the morning sun. He feels a white flare on the scalp and nape 
as he grips Bruno by the collar, feeling a slow, deep growl build in his body as he gathers strength for an attack. Now, as the knocking continues, masked odalisk takes precedence over his vision. The woman with an owl's face, her flesh cast in dark light, a picture of love and desire. He remembers it as though it were a wild night of passion, a vivid scene from an old movie, or an unforgettable meal. George realizes he can recall it stroke for stroke, color for color, this painting, along with all the other images in his gallery, even without needing to see any of them, the faces, the bodies and the places, coming in cruel and tender, in the middle of the morning. You have just listened to Self with Dog, 1997 by Angelo R. La Cuesta, also known as Sarge La Cuesta. An earlier version of the story appeared in the Philippine graphic and was later included in Sarge's collection, White Elephant's Stories, published by Anvil. I asked Sarge what inspired him to write this piece, and he tells us that the story was inspired by many real events, from the Asian currency crisis in the late 90s to the resurgence in the art scene around the 2000s that brought with it its share of artists, hangers-on, and pretenders and losers. There are actually a lot more things that the author shared, but tell you what, I'm going to post this reply in full on our Facebook page. Just look up Pakinggan Pilipinas, click like, and there you go, full access to the backstories on our episodes. By the way, Sarge Laquesta has another fiction collection out released only last year. It's called Flames and Other Stories. They should be available where books are sold. I bought mine at Power Books. You should also know that this is a special episode, aside from the fact that it features one of the most, in my opinion, most gifted writers in the country. It's our first overseas recording. Ed Kilo, our volunteer narrator this month, is based in Singapore and Through the wonders of technology, we were able to produce this audio miracle without setting foot on an airplane. Thanks so much, Ed. We did it. And there you have it. We hope you enjoyed the story. And do come back for a double issue in December. Yes, you heard me, a double issue. Two back-to-back stories. This is Elise Punsalan for Pakinggan Pilipinas. Ating kwento, pakinggan mo. (laughs) 